Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. Now, we're going to turn to the scripture, as we do every week, and we will always continue to do. Uh, this week from 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to that famous love chapter. Who had 1 Corinthians 13 read at your wedding? A couple? Only a couple? Wow, that's pretty amazing. Like, normally it's like everybody who's married. Um, if you were married in a Christian ceremony, like 1 Corinthians 13 is always there. You're going to find, uh, we're going to approach it a little bit differently than maybe uh, you've heard before today. Um, but I'm excited to introduce, uh, to invite Terry up to read the scripture. Good morning. If I speak in human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these things is love. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, here we are in 1 Corinthians 13 for the final sermon in our Gather series as we've been talking about gathering as a people. Now, I want to start in a weird place, though. I don't want to start in 1 Corinthians or even in the city of Corinth. I want to go way back to 1 Chronicles 16. Um, back in 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles um, what's happening is King David... Of Israel, you've heard of King David, right? Um, king David, the greatest king of Israel ever, has moved the capital of Israel to Jerusalem. That was one of the things that happened uh, under his reign. The capital moves to what becomes known as the city of David or Jerusalem. And as he moves the capital to Jerusalem, they have to move God's tabernacle. 
Now, this is not a small thing that you do. You don't just move God's house willy-nilly. It's not like they just tore it down one day and set it up in Jerusalem the next. They had processes that they went through, rituals they had to go through. It was a very worshipful, very holy thing. And none of that move was more holy or more careful than the move of the Ark of the Covenant. You heard of the Ark of the Covenant before? Even if you've seen Indiana Jones, you know what the Ark of the Covenant is, right? The Ark of the Covenant is a special um, box that God had created that had inside of it some of the most holy relics from Israel's history. And the Ark of the Covenant was the place where God's very real presence came and dwelled when it was inside of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was God's first temple that people made. It was the first temple that Israel had. It was a tent that they could move around place to place. And in the very center of the tabernacle sat the Ark of the Covenant in the place we would call the Holy of Holies, which is where God's presence dwelled. And the Ark, on the lid of the Ark, had two cherubim, which you imagine as angels. They're winged creatures. There are two cherubim on either side of the Ark of the Covenant of the lid. And in between their wings, as they came up, was God's very presence. God's holy presence. And so you didn't move the Ark of the Covenant without taking it very, very seriously. In fact, while the Ark was moving, if someone were to even get too close to it, they were in danger of dying. We see this happening a couple of times when Israel is wandering in the wilderness. They've been freed from Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness. After the Ark has been made, we see a couple of people during that time approach the Ark and actually die. Because they've approached God's presence without the right preparation, without being worthy to be in God's presence right then. And so it's a big deal to move the Ark of the Covenant. That's what I'm trying to get at, right? It's a big deal to move God's very seat. The Ark of the Covenant is also called the mercy seat. In Greek, it's called the hilasterion, just in case you wondered, right? It gets, you don't move God's throne without be taking it very seriously. And so, in 1 Chronicles 16, the Ark of the Covenant has been moved from its previous place and now set up permanently inside the tent in Jerusalem. David, the king, had a tent set up, a new tabernacle set up within Jerusalem, and the Ark of the Covenant's now been moved in. And David had Asaph, one of his kind of royal songwriters, Uh, write a song for this occasion. And that's what we have in 1 Chronicles 16, is the song that Asaph and the singers wrote for the occasion of moving the Ark of the Covenant into the tent in the new capital in Jerusalem. We following? Right? Okay? That's That's a lot of history. It's a lot of background. Now we're to the song. And what this song does, as so many songs of worship from Israel do, is that it tells the history of how God has interacted with his people. This song talks about how God has always been there, how God chose these people when they couldn't deserve it, how God chose to love them and walk with them, how God's been there when they've been wayward and they've gone astray over and over and over. It's a song all about God's faithfulness to a people who were never faithful to him. That's the song that Asaph writes for the occasion of moving God's throne into the tent in Jerusalem where God will reside in the capital city of his people. And at the end of this song, we read these verses. 
34. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. And say, save us, God of our salvation. Gather us and rescue us from the nations so that we may give thanks to your holy name and rejoice in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And so that that phrase begins again. Remember, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. That's how the song ends. With this capstone, the song has reminded the people of God how God's been with them all through their history, even when they weren't faithful to God. That God's love never, ever, ever failed them. And it wraps up. And then we move forward in time and we can go to Psalm 136, which is kind of a a summary of Asaph's song from 1 Chronicles. So the song we just read in 1 Chronicles 16, the it gets formalized in the songbook of God's people, the Psalms, in Psalm 136. And so this is a psalm that would have been read responsively with the people or sung responsively. And so you can imagine a priest or a rabbi up front in a gathering of God's people and reading this psalm with them. And after every line, there comes the line, his faithful love endures forever. And this whole psalm is just like the song of Asaph. This whole psalm is a reminder of how God has always been there. God never let go. God always rescued his people over and over and over and over and over again. God's never abandoned his people even when they weren't faithful. And so this psalm, when it's read or sung with God's people all together, is an anchoring, a reminder of who God is and who we are in relation to him. And here's here's what we learn about God's character and the nature of what love is from these songs in these episodes. What we learn is that love is not a sentiment. It's not a feeling. It's not an attraction. It's not an emotion. Love is none of those things. Now, we live in a world where love is the feeling and then everything flows from the feeling. Love is a feeling that we feel towards someone. It's an attraction that we have toward people. It's a burning within us. And then everything comes after the feeling of love that we feel. We talk about people being in love. We talk about loving someone you just met. We talk about falling in love. And yet none of those are what God's love is. None of those describe what God's love toward us is and what the foundation of human love actually is. When we read the Bible and we see God working over and over through the history of his people and continually committing to them even when they fail to commit to him, we see that love itself is a commitment. Commitments don't flow from love. The commitment is love. Love is an unwavering commitment to another person's good. Love is me saying, I am committed to you. I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to walk away from you. I'm not going to give up on you. We see this in marriage vows, right? It's, it's become popular to write your own vows, and, and I've done this with a few couples, and sometimes, sometimes those, those vows 
are really just sentimental kind of mush. And so we have to go back and revisit them. Because the, the vows that people will sometimes write are something like, I love you, I feel, I feel so much love toward you. I, I, and, and it's all about how you feel in the moment. It's not actually a vow. But there's a reason that in a wedding we make vows. There's a reason that when we get married, we make vows to one another. Because we recognize we won't always feel loving toward our spouse. Anybody in this room always felt loving toward your spouse? Always felt like those initial butterflies? Anybody in this room ever, like never? Oh, thank you, Kevin. Yes. Suck up. (laughs) You won't always feel great about your spouse. And there will, let me, let me let you in on a little secret for you who aren't married. There will come times that you may feel feelings or attractions towards someone who's not your spouse. That's not love. You don't love that other person. You love your spouse because you've made vows. You've committed to them. That's the foundation of your love. Now, here's here's where the feelings do come in. You cannot make an ironclad commitment to another person's good and not feel loving toward them. You cannot make a commitment to another person's good and consistently act in that way, consistently live in a way that benefits that other person and not grow in loving feelings toward that person. The feelings flow from the commitment. We live in a culture that's gotten it 180 degrees backwards where the commitment flows from the feelings. Well, when the feelings go, I don't need to be committed anymore. This is why we have laws like no-fault divorce. Well, those love and feelings just ain't there. And so nobody's at fault. It just didn't work out. No, you let up on your commitment. There may be good reasons for divorce, of abuse. There may be good reasons to step away from a relationship, but not feeling loving toward the other person is not one of them. Love is the commitment. This is the kind of love that God has given his people. Over and over and over and over and over again, even when they were unfaithful. Like we talked about last week with the whole story of Hosea, this prophet of God, who God says, hey, Hosea, go marry a prostitute to illustrate my love toward my people. And when she cheats on you, stay with her. And when she has children from those relationships, stay with her. That's love. I commit to you and I do not give up on that commitment. That's biblical love. That's how the psalmist and Asaph could write in these songs, God's faithful love endures forever. It never, ever, ever ends. It always goes on and on. It commits and keeps on committing. and It never stops committing. That's God's love for you. You should rejoice in that, right? Like that, that's, that's exciting because none of us have ever experienced that love from another person. Even our spouses. Because we're human beings and we fall short. And there are times, even in our most loving relationships, where that commitment feels frail or that commitment feels flimsy. There are times when we question our own commitment in our own relationships. Because we're human, 
That's just who we are. We don't commit like God does. When we do commit like God does, there are times that we're tempted to move away from that commitment. Or it doesn't feel as strong as it once did. But our God is a God who loves and commits and never stops loving and never stops committing. This is what it means for God's mercies to be new every morning. Have you ever thought about that phrase? God's mercies are new every morning. That's just, that, that's not God saying, I feel nice about you today. That's God saying, I am so committed to you. No matter what happened yesterday, I'm committed to you again today. No matter what you did yesterday, no matter what you did this morning, I am still committed to you and I'm not giving up on that commitment. I am holding fast forever. You cannot leave God's hand. You cannot leave his relationship. Once you have been brought in and you have been adopted by God and you have made a citizen of his kingdom, you can't break that because God committed to you more strongly than you could ever commit to him. That's what love is. So when we turn to 1 Corinthians 13 now, we got to have that in the back of our minds. We got to understand that when the Bible talks about love, And specifically when it uses that Greek word agape for love, that's what it means. I commit and I never stop committing. I commit every day to you. I commit every morning to you. I'm never going to not commit to you. And that's where we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, if you've been reading the book of 1 Corinthians or the letter of 1 Corinthians, then you know this is one messed up community. This is one incredibly dysfunctional group of people. Here's the problem. When you've got the Apostle Paul traveling around to these Gentile cities across the Roman Empire, and he's sharing the good news of Jesus, and people are becoming Christians, they're becoming followers of Jesus, they don't just drop all their culture and all the things that made them them and adopt a whole new one. They bring all their baggage and all their stuff with them, just like you and I do. They're not all of a sudden like perfect, sweet, angelic people. They got all their junk, and they got all their cultural baggage, and they got all their old idols and everything still with them when they come to Jesus. And when you get a whole bunch of people from a whole bunch of different backgrounds in one place, united only by Jesus and not by any other thing, because they don't have much in common, what's going to happen? Conflict. Conflict is inevitable. If conflict is inevitable in a marriage where people have committed to each other and said, I promise to love you forever, then how much more likely is conflict in a group of people who have just come together and the only bond between them is Jesus and their shared faith? They don't even agree on how to follow Jesus. They don't even agree on the best course of action when they're following Jesus together. And so conflict is inevitable. Only in Corinth, man, conflict was even worse than a lot of other places. It was crazy. They had a dude living with, among them in the church who was sleeping with his stepmom. Right now, that's the Apostle Paul's writing this letter, and he's like, I haven't heard of that among the pagans. Like, you know you bad when, like, even the pagan Idol worshipers aren't doing that. Come on, y'all. So they've got some serious dysfunction. And on top of that, they got some people in the church who feel like they're maybe a little better than everybody else. They got some guys, some women maybe, 
who can prophesy. That means they can speak God's word and they stand up in confidence and they declare God's word to people. And boy, they are, they're the top of the heap. They're the ones everybody wants to be like. And then you got some people who every single time they gather, they're speaking in angelic tongues or they're speaking in some other language. They're praying in, in tongues among the people. And they feel like they're really the spiritual heroes here. And you got some people who have these showy gifts. You got some people who can perform miracles within this group. You got some people who have the gift of healing. People come to them and they get prayed for and they can be confident that God will heal them because God's given this person the gift of healing. There's some weird stuff going on here. There's some weird things happening in this community and it's causing division because now you got some who are looked, at, looked up at, at as being really the spiritual heroes. And then you've got others who could do things like serve the community and distribute food to the poor, who can visit the widows and orphans. And they're kind of looked down upon because, well, your gifts are nice, but they're nothing like prophesying or speaking in tongues or healing people. I mean, it, it's good that you can do those things. It's good that you can visit the old people. That's, that's wonderful. But you're not the preacher, right? And so the very gifts of God given to the people in Corinth is causing division because the way people are using them is to puff themselves up, to make a name for themselves, to get bigger within the community. And they're pointing to themselves and saying, well, God really blessed me. I don't know about you. And then you got a further problem. So that's bad, right? you got people from all over, all kinds of different cultures coming together. They're bringing their baggage and there's conflict. Then you got the Holy Spirit giving spiritual gifts to people, and that's causing conflict because the way people are using them is selfish. And then every week when they gather, there's something called the love feast, which is communion. Only when they did communion, they did a full meal. And it was potluck style every single week. You bring some food. Only the wealthy people were bringing lots of wine and like delicate, Deli what, delicious foods, whatever. Delicacies. Thank you, Prentice. Saving me there. They're bringing delicacies. They're bringing lots of wine. And you got the poor people who can hardly bring anything at all. And they're not sharing their food. The wealthy people are, are scarfing and, and indulging themselves in their delicacies. And they're drinking all their wine. They're getting drunk. Meanwhile, the poor people are over here and they don't really have a seat at the table. They're not really welcome. And this is how they're practicing communion. And the Apostle Paul doesn't pull any punches. He says, this is evil. Like, this is straight up evil. Like, the way that you're treating each other, the way that you're doing communion, this is supposed to be the thing that unifies you as a community, and it's causing further division, and you're oppressing people when you do it. And so this, this is the state of the church in Corinth. Thank God nothing like that's ever happened here, right? No conflict, no division, right? No one's ever been looked at as better than other people. Not, not here. No, we're, we're not in the same boat as Corinth, for sure. Right? These folks are, are struggling really badly. And so the Apostle Paul has been writing through this book, through this letter to this church, trying to correct these issues, trying to correct the way that they're taking communion and they're eating together, trying to draw them to Jesus as the person who unites them, trying to point to a better 
way. And that's exactly what he says at the end of 1 Corinthians 12. He says, and now I'll show you an even more excellent way. He's just spent chapter 12 talking about spiritual gifts and saying, hey guys, like it's not wrong that you have these gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues and, and healing the sick. It, it's not wrong that you have those. It's wrong that you're holding them up on a pedestal and making some people better than others based on that. Because let's be real, folks. The folks who serve and who clean up stuff and serve the poor and go visit the sick and the weak and the imprisoned, they are just as important as the prophets among you. Everybody's gift is equally important. Everybody's ability is equally important. Within the church, the shut-in who can only pray on her knees is as valuable as the preacher on the stage. Within the church, the person who can only give a, a couple of dollars a month because they have to feed their family is just as important as the person who's giving 2000 a month. Within the church, it's about the heart with which we come and the way that we serve one another and honor Jesus with what we have. Because you can't do with what you don't have. And so we bring what we can. And we bring our hearts and we do what we can in love. And there are times when the person who gives $25,000 a year is actually doing less than the person who can give five hundred, dollars Because what they're doing is out of their excess. And they have it. And it's not causing them any discomfort. Where the person who brings a few bucks a week is really digging deep. And they're giving of themselves. There are plenty of times when the person who faithfully goes and visits the shut-in and loves on them is doing a greater work than the person up front preaching the word who hasn't loved on someone individually. We're all gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve Christ's people. But Paul says at the end of chapter 12 when he's been talking about all these spiritual gifts hey, listen, but there's an even better way here. All these things are good. Don't throw them out. But listen carefully now. Now remember, he's writing a letter. Any of you ever written a letter with chapter breaks in it? Right? You, you, you don't do that, right? You don't write verses in your letters and chapter breaks so people can refer to you later. Paul didn't write that way either. Okay? So there were no chapter breaks when he wrote this letter. It flowed straight on through. So we have to kind of get over our heads that like, there's, there's no division between chapter 12 and chapter 13. When Paul says, let me show you a more excellent way and then flows right into the way of love, that's what he's saying. The most excellent way of being in the world is to love. And to love the way that God loves. And so here's what he says. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul's just referring to all those gifts that he shared about in chapter 12. And he's saying, look, you guys are doing all this stuff, but you're not loving each other. And love is the greatest gift we have. All those other gifts, he's going to say later, all those other gifts are going away. There will be a day when they're no longer necessary. When Jesus returns and we're in his presence, none of those gifts will be necessary. But you know what will be? Love. 
Love will never end. Love goes on and on. And if in this life we do anything without love, it's pointless. Now listen to what he says here. This is really interesting. Because somebody's going to say, yeah, Brandon, but if you feed a hungry belly without love, that belly's still full. And that's a good thing. And no one would deny that. But the Apostle Paul would say that's still not ultimately a good. He says, if I give away all my possessions, and if I give my body over in the service of others, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. It is of no eternal value to me. Yeah, people got my stuff. The hungry belly's fed. But it profits me nothing. That's a hard word. It's a hard word to hear that no matter what good I am doing in the world, if I am not doing it out of love, it gains us nothing. It does not benefit me in the end. Let's sit there for a minute. He's calling us to a radical life of love. But the natural follow-up to that is, what does this love look like? Okay, Paul, I hear you. I'm supposed to do everything in love. Now, can you tell me what that means? Can you define love for me? And Paul says, sure, I'll do that for you. And he goes on. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Oh, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? That sounds wonderful as long as you're the recipient of that love. But the very moment you're called to enact that love, you see just how hard it is. The only way we can approach this sentimentally and think, oh, that is sweet and wonderful, is if we don't make that demand of ourselves. But think about this. Like, think about your own life and how you operate day to day. Love is patient. Who deals with impatience, right? Love is kind. Whoever said an unkind word to another person? Love does not envy. I know y'all are envying. Is not boastful. Is not arrogant. You may do a decent job of that. But we can still be self-centered. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not irritable. Any parents of little children here? Okay. I know you were irritable. I know it. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. And yet all you have to do is look at our entertainment media to see how much we find joy in unrighteousness. All you got to do is look at the shows you watch and the things that we enjoy to see that we take so much joy in unrighteousness. Love bears all things. It endures, it bears it holds up under pressure. It doesn't fold. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never 
fails. Anybody failed this morning? Anybody failed in the past 48 hours? Love is hard. We cannot read this and think, oh, how sweet and wonderful when we are called to love this way. We're supposed to read this list and go, wait a minute. This is impossible. The people that I love the most in my life, I'm irritable with. How am I supposed to do that with a stranger who annoys me with every word that comes out of their mouth? How am I supposed to do that in this group? Paul's not talking about married couples here. He's talking about strangers in the church. The other way of reading this sentimentally is to think that it's only applied to the people we're closest to. Then we can kind of consider that we might be able to live this way. But the very moment you apply this to someone outside your inner circle, you see just how impossible it is. This is an impossible standard of love. And I don't hesitate at all to say that. What Paul's just given us, what God has given us in his inspired word, is an absolutely impossible standard of love for any human to live. We should get here and be moved to a sort of hopelessness, to a sort of grieving. Oh my God, why? We should read this and this should be the beginning of our confession. In fact, if you have a hard time confessing your sin in your prayers, start with this chapter. Go to 1 Corinthians 13 and read this list of how love behaves. And you've, you've got weeks worth of confession right there. God, I was irritable with my kids. God, I, I was rude to that person. I didn't even mean to be, but I was. God, I, God I've been self-seeking in the way I spend my time. God... God, there's so much we can confess just right here in how we fail to love. So where's the hope here? We're supposed to read this. And instead of looking inwardly to how we failed, and especially instead of looking outwardly and asking how other people have failed us, which would be self-seeking, we're supposed to read this and look through it to Jesus. This is the character of Jesus on display for us. This is the character of Christ laid before us. This is who Jesus is. And so everywhere that you read love, just replace it with the word Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus is not boastful. Jesus is not arrogant. Jesus is never rude. Jesus is never self-seeking. Jesus is not irritable. Jesus does not keep a record of wrongs. And how beautiful is that? Jesus never ends. He believes all things and bears all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Christ is my rock. Christ is love. Laid out for me. Put on display for me. Given to me. 
This is the love I have received from Jesus. This is the love I have received from my God. This is the love that the psalmist was talking about back in Psalm 136 and that Asaph was talking about back in 1 Chronicles 16. This is the love of our God. This is the very character and heart and root of our God from the very beginning before he created anything and before he ever even decided to love you. This is the God who looked at you and said, I love you. This is the content of all of God's love for us. And this is the foundation of our community. This is why we are here. It's what's called us together. And the reason that love never fails, the reason that love never ends, is because it is core to who God is. The Apostle John will say in 1 John, God is love. This is another place where we've gotten it backwards and we've said love is God. And what we mean is the way that we feel and the sentiments that we have and the way that we care for people and the way that, the way that people make us feel and the way that we're attracted to people. That's God. We live in a culture and in a media environment that, that's laid that out for us. But the biblical witness is exactly the opposite. God is love. God defines love. And God's love is greater and deeper and stronger than any love the world could give us. Or anything we could ever work up within ourselves. God's love is the only true love. And we love to the extent that we reflect God's love. We love to the extent that we mirror Jesus' love. And so the Apostle Paul can say, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. This is beautiful. If you've ever been confused by this language, I'm going to help you out. Paul is saying, look, I don't get this right. I don't love this way. I'm still a child. I still see in a mirror dimly. I don't love perfectly this way. This whole chapter, this whole, this whole line, this whole reason of argument is just ambitious. This is who I want to be because this is who God is to me. This is who I want to be to you because it's who Jesus has been to me. But I fail. I fall short. I am so imperfect in this because I'm still a child. I'm still growing up. I'm still growing into Jesus. I've still got a long way to go. But there's a day. There's a day coming when Jesus will come back. There's a day coming when Jesus will return. There's a day coming when Jesus will finally make all things right. And on that day, we will see clearly. On that day, all those other gifts and all those other things that you're valuing will be pointless. They will die. They will be destroyed. But love will never end. Love will carry us through all of eternity. Love is coming back. Love is coming for you. Love is coming to remake you and perfect you into its own image because love has a name and his name is Jesus Christ. Love is coming for us and all of the failures and falters of this life will be done. And it's that hope that carries us through. It's that hope. 
in our risen king, in our God who displayed his commitment and love for us by hanging on a cross and by rising from a tomb and by reigning as our king. It's that hope in Jesus Christ that carries us through and that begins the work of transformation all along the way. And so I can look at this list and I can say, yes, I fail, but I'm on my way. Yes, I fail, but I'm growing in love. Yes, I fall short, but my king has made up for my failures and is making me more like him every single day. And so I can see the way that I fail and fall short and I am free to confess my faults before my good God and know that he will never fail fail to make me more like Jesus every day. This is the foundation of our community. This is why we gather. This is why we come to this table. Every single week when we come to this table and we partake of the body and blood of Jesus, we are drawn back into the love that transformed us. We are come drawn back into the love whose name is Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he's made for us and the work that he is doing inside of us. That's why we come to this table. That's why we partake of this meal and why we will never fail to do this week in and week out because I need it. I need to be anchored and rooted in the love whose name is Jesus so that I can be transformed into that love myself.